Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight it is January 29th of 2015. That's the first show of the new year for us. <coughs> uh, tonight our guest is uh, Dr. Sean X. Lowe of uh, Columbia University. He has an MD and a PhD. He's an addiction psychiatrist. He also studies connectomics, which is how your neurons are connected in your brain. We're going to bring him on in just a second. First, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Our guest, Sean Lowe, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Sean? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Kenneth. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Tell us a little bit about connectomics. Maybe some people have never heard of that. What is that? There are actually a number of uh, areas of research that connectomics um, describes. And I just wanted to correct a a little bit of what you said earlier. I'm not personally involved in research in connectomics, Mm -hmm. although I do know uh, individuals who have been conducting research in this area. Generally speaking, what connectomics is, is that it refers to a kind of research that attempts to uh, describe or delineate connections between neurons, all neurons in a particular nervous system, and it describes the entirety of the knowledge between the connections in that nervous system. And uh, the word connectome is a singular uh, noun that describes the, the entirety of connections in a particular organism. So you can say the connectome of you, connectome of me, or the connectome of a worm, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does this relate to addiction? So there, uh, there has been uh, a lot of interest in understanding addiction as changes in connectivity between neurons in the brain. And mm-hmm. uh, connectomics is a, a, an approach in neuroscience research where not only are you understanding specific connections between specific neurons, you're understanding the entire collection of all connections. So this particular kind of research may be able to uh, shed light on the process of substance abuse and potentially provide a way for us to get better prognosis, diagnosis, and treatment options. Okay, that sounds good. What is your focus for research at Columbia? My focus in research is more in particular, uh, is in personalized medicine or precision medicine in substance abuse. And what that Mm -hmm. means is that in uh, all substance abuse, uh, substance use disorders that we encounter in clinical practice, we know that different individuals respond to different treatment differently. 
For example, mm-hmm. uh, when someone is, has nicotine dependence, smokes cigarette and can't stop, there are a number of treatments available for that individual. Uh, nicotine patch, um, uh, varenicline, which is also known as Chantet, Wellbutrin. Uh, these medications mm-hmm. are effective in some people but not in other people. And mm-hmm. we don't know a lot about why it is that some treatment options are more effective for some people but not for others. And my particular mm-hmm. area of interest in my research is to try to collect a large uh, amount of data on specific patients on an individual level and try to see if applying complicated uh, algorithms uh, derived mostly from artificial intelligence can allow you, the clinician, the doctor, the therapist, to make a more informed decision on what the optimal treatment for a particular patient to, uh, out of the options that are out there to help him quit in, a most, in the most reliable way. So that's the mm-hmm. essential concept of precision medicine uh, that, that I, uh, I, I, this is the kind of flavor of research that I'm working on right now. Um, <clears throat> I think that's a really great and really important thing to be looking at. Um, you know, addiction treatment, um, for so many people, for so many providers, so many programs, it's our way or the highway. They they know the truth. There's one correct way, and they're going to force it down everybody's throat against their will. It doesn't matter how bad it fits or how harmful it is. They're going to push their way. Uh, you know, I was through a treatment uh, a couple times, you know, about uh, 15 years ago. It was really pretty awful <laughs> for that reason. Mm-hmm. You know, I think exactly that we right actually... You're absolutely right. Uh, the uh, There are a number of treatment options, and many of them are effective. And a lot of people have the misunderstanding that there are, there are only specific treatment options and only these options are effective. But the reality is different people really respond differently to different kinds of treatments. And mm-hmm. uh, the public have a certain idea of what treatments for substance abuse look like. But really, um, the, the, the heterogeneity, the differences between individual patients is so large that making a blanket statement like, for instance, AA is the only treatment that works is um, extremely inaccurate. And it certainly can, can carry a lot of uh, stigma uh, in patients who want treatment but know that certain treatment options don't work for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we actually have a huge political battle first just to get the treatment providers to recognize that options exist, you know, because so many don't want to recognize. They have, they have one true way. From I mean, for decades it was the 12-step is the only way, and uh, we're not going to do anything else. And now I've seen a few other approaches coming up lately. I saw one guy lately who says, oh, Vivitrol, uh, you know, which is the naltrexone uh, depot or mm-hmm. injection, is, mm-hmm. that's, good, that's good for everyone. Everyone needs Vivitrol. No one should get maintenance. And it's like, it's just stupid. Right, right. 
And the assumption, and, you know, I've been thinking about this question of why the public um, have this opinion that um, addiction is a little bit uh, simplistic or um, unitary and, uh, you know, there's one cause and one treatment. And the reason I think has something to do with the differences between substance use, use disorders and some of these other medical things that we can come up with, which is that it's very clear that there is a component of the cause for substance use disorder that is environmental. That is, you're being exposed to the substance abuse. If you don't have access to alcohol, then you're not going to become alcohol dependent. So mm-hmm. because there's this simplistic way to understand some of the causal factors in substance abuse, many people start to form opinions and what they can do with that particular uh, 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 cause, which is exposure. So that particular mm-hmm. understanding that subsequently leads to uh, all kinds of ways of understanding this process, which is very complex, and erroneously try to reduce it into something that's simple or simplistic. But the mm-hmm. reality is we know that some, the, the genesis, the, the uh, emergence of addiction has, has, uh, has a lot to do with not only exposure to the substance of abuse, but also genetic factors and other factors that, um, other environmental factors like uh, socioeconomic background, uh, race and ethnicity, gender, and the surrounding culture, and all of these factors interact in very complex ways. And this is why, to bring it back down to uh, my research interest, it's very possible that um, when people look at these predictors uh, individually, you're not going to get a lot of information. What you have to do is to combine these predictors combine these factors together to make an informed um, uh, treatment decision or even a diagnostic decision. And this is where these complicated computer algorithms uh, move in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's probably the ideal way to do it. Um, you know, just what's coming to mind right now is, you know, as I said, many, many providers, most providers don't provide options it would be nice if we could just first just get treatment providers to provide a menu of options. Here's several different ways to do it. Uh, see if one of these works for you, which is what our program tries to do. We say, okay, here's a whole bunch of different ways to approach it. Uh, pick the one that works for you, um, which is, I mean, it's a huge political battle to uh, change the public's mind and to change the provider's mind. And, we have the government involved too, and the whole war on drugs, and the whole—I mean, NIDA says all non-medical drug use is drug abuse, which, from the DSM perspective, of course, is total nonsense. Most people that use drugs non-medically use them recreationally. Right. Right. And certainly, uh, recreational drug use behavior does not in and of itself constitute a substance use disorder. And that's pretty clearly spelled out in the DSM. And mm-hmm. recreational use of drugs does not necessarily lead to drug use, uh, 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 substance use disorder later on. 
And to what mm-hmm. extent does recreational drug use lead to these uh, pathological phenomena? And, you know, what are the causal factors involved? And can you predict when, uh, when a uh, 17-year-old uh, is using, is trying marijuana recreationally, uh, five years down the line, is he going to be someone who's heavily using marijuana on a daily basis and therefore incapacitated to carry out any other function in, uh, in, in his daily life? This kind of prediction is extremely difficult to make. So the current paradigm is that when a simple behavior such as drug use emerges, you start to categorize people into either an addict or not. And this mm-hmm. kind of simplistic uh, categorization doesn't reflect the clinical reality and can carry a lot of stigma uh, and prevent people from looking for treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I think, well, at least some treatments, or at least some exposure to treatment, I think you can take recreational users, give them treatment, and turn them into addicted users because of bad treatment. Uh, um, I know Myers Elements wrote something about the, that with treatment for teens. It just exposes them to more and more drugs. And, you know, they start using drugs they never tried before after treatment. Right. I mean, there are certainly clinical examples where uh, patients, uh, especially younger patients who go into treatment um, uh, context and then become exposed to more substances of abuse. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my reaction to my treatment, well, of course, I've got, uh, well, I had two treatment programs I went through. And the first one, was interesting. It was about uh, 1995, so it was about 20 years ago. Um, and it was mixed CBT and 12-step. And I actually benefited from mm-hmm. CBT, and the 12-step was uh, totally awful for me. I-, I was raised as a fundamentalist Christian, and I rejected yeah. that at an early age. So this was just like the worst thing I could hear was, uh, you need to accept God because only God can cure your disease. What kind of nonsense is that? They look terrible. Right, me to hear. Right. I know I know some people like that approach and it's good for them, but not for me. Yeah, you know, it's it's very interesting that you raised this question of uh using C B T versus twelve step program and you know, how can you determine which program is better for who? And it turns out NIDA conducted this very large study called Project Match that looked mm-hmm. exactly at that problem. So this was a study, if I remember correctly, that finished in, in the early 90s when we didn't have very big computers that can do very complicated things. We certainly didn't have things like Google Car, you know, and all these other uh, machine learning algorithms. But back then, NIDA was already interested in this question of whether or not different psychotherapy modalities can be matched to different individuals. So what they did was they enrolled thousands of patients uh, in this clinical trial to either 12-step facilitation or CBT or another treatment program is called Motivational Enhancement Treatment, or MET. Mm -hmm. And they divided these people up, and what they showed is that actually people recovered from alcohol at the same rate in all three arms. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people 
still have the misconception that AA is the only efficacious psychotherapy treatment for alcoholism. And, you know, and not a lot of people know that there is a very large clinical trial that's shown that other psychotherapy treatments are just as effective as AA. But, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the end of that treatment, the, the punchline of the treatment trial was, can you identify predictors that would tell you who's going to respond better to AA or to CBT or MET? And they've tried very hard. They looked at many, many different predictors, and it turns out that nothing was identified. So at least simplistically, when you're just looking at very simple things, you can't really easily match people to their ideal psychotherapy treatment. So we really need to do better. And this data is publicly available to be mined, but, you know, even though we have since then progressed tremendously in terms of computational science, uh, nobody has yet to, uh, gone back to, to look at this data. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Project Match is interesting in several ways. It's it's one of my pet hobby horses here. Uh, and one yeah. is the fact they had they had no control group to compare if the treatments did better right. than no right. treatments. And though we know that people with uh, substance dependence get better with no treatment. And there were right. actually some art- articles that followed up um, and suggested Absolutely. that the the treatment might not, none of the three treatments might have been better than a no treatment. Right. So, so yeah, this is a well-known objection to that study. But you have to keep in mind, in the MET group, they really only met with the patients for a couple of sessions. It was mm-hmm. not a very intense treatment arm. So, in some ways, that particular arm, I think one of the, you know, the, the, the team that designed the original study probably argued amongst themselves, although I don't know too much about that, and probably determined that the MET arm should have been something that's a little bit similar to a placebo arm. Although, of course, you know, this has been uh, quite the controversy about the study since then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the other thing about the study that is, is uh, problematic, if you read the 12-step facilitation manual, um, well, first they did all the 12-step facilitation one-on-one, no groups. It was all delivered one-on-one. Um, people were told if they relapsed that they should forgive themselves if they didn't lose any abstinence time, which if you ever went to a standard 12-step treatment, everything's done in groups. You're told if you relapse, you're back to zero. It was so different than anything you ever see in a 12-step treatment program or in an AA meeting that it was just not representative of anything. Right, right, right. I see, I see, right. So in some sense, it's sort of an enhanced 12-step program um, treatment is, is what mm-hmm. you're, you're arguing that it's actually a little bit more enhanced than a traditional uh, 12-step program in the community. And I, I, would, I would agree with you uh, on that point as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was reading the manual, I said, wow, this treatment is really nice. I would have done much better with this than the actual treatment I got at the actual rehab right. I was right. attending. Yeah, it was so much better. 
So, I mean, I do understand that the person that uh, created that part, they didn't want the 12-step to do badly, so they tried to de- design an ideal 12-step program instead of a representative one, but that that's a problem. Right. right. Well, so, you know, the strength of the uh, randomized controlled study is that they could really start to look at whether or not randomization, random assignment uh, can remove a lot of the confounding factors in the people who go into 12-step programs versus CBT tend to be different uh, when you're just looking at community samples. But, you know, you're talking about now these other issues, which is that these studies are designed in such a way that are not generalizable or practical for community, for people in, in the community who may or may not receive the kind of treatments that they try so I think that there are additional um, uh, ways of doing studies that are not necessarily randomized uh, clinical trials, but longer, mm-hmm. more extensive uh, longitudinal studies for people who are going into community programs. And you, if you can um, measure their characteristics in a comprehensive way, even if they're not randomized into specific treatments, you may still be able to figure out or make predictions about what they're going to do, whether they're going to relapse or whether they stick uh, in a particular treatment context. You know, a lot of practical decisions that we're making outside of medicine are not based on randomized clinical trials, but they're still uh, Mm -hmm. successful policies uh, that rely on analyses that may not have as much rigor in terms of demonstrating causal relationships, but nevertheless are very useful. So I think the approach, which is now uh, has a certain buzz associated, which is uh, this big data approach to collect as much data as possible in practical situations with as many patients as possible is potentially a, a very promising approach in substance abuse research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, but even with that, I think there's some really obvious predictors that uh, they've they've been ignored traditionally. Um, if someone goes into a consultation with their MD and the MD, or maybe they think they're drinking too much, and they say, I think I'm drinking too much, and the MD says, well, you need to go to AA. And if you say, I've been there, I really hated it, and I drank more, as a result, uh, you usually get the answer. You're in denial. AA is the only thing that works. You have to go there, and you're bad for saying you don't like it. Instead of saying, well, if you hate AA, you're probably going to fail with it. How about trying CBT? How about smart recovery? How about harm reduction? How about moderation? <clears throat> right. But <clears throat> people are not offered these options. But if you really hate 12-step and you love CBT, you're probably going to do well with CBT. Uh, if you love 12-step and hate CBT, you're probably going to do well with the 12-step. So, you know, we don't even listen so, to people. Yeah. yeah. So what's interesting is you're actually bringing up also a very interesting point that I have specifically some research interest about. Um, mm-hmm. So what you're actually saying, to make it a little bit more rigorous, is what you're saying is that early treatment response may be a significant predictor of long-term treatment outcomes. 
right? Yes, so exactly. So you're saying someone who exactly. tried CBT for a little bit and really liked it or really responded well to it. I mean, it's very hard to figure out where the causal relationship is. Do you like it because you did well with it, or did you do well with it because you liked it? And I think that it's very hard to tease apart which of these are, uh, you know, the the first step and which is the second step. But you don't really have to think about that in, in this term. But you can just think that, okay, if someone did really well with CBT early on, perhaps that's a strong predictor that he's going to do well to CBT. On the other hand, if someone did really well with 12-step, maybe that would be a strong predictor that he's going to do well with 12-step. With so then the treatment should be we should use a certain amount of time to figure out which treatment is this patient really going to respond to and use that in combination with a bunch of other things um, uh, to predict uh, which treatment that this patient is eventually going to respond to. So actually one of my research papers deals specifically with this issue. So in cocaine treatment, one of the common treatment strategies is called contingency management, which is a way for uh, treatment providers to provide incentive or financial incentive uh, to cocaine-using subjects where they get paid for each uh, negative urine that they provide. And they get uh, escalating payments uh, if they can provide sequentially negative urine. So prolonged abstinence is really something that this particular behavioral treatment program promotes. But it turns out Mm -hmm. not everybody responds just like any other treatment to this particular treatment. Only about mm-hmm. 50% of the patients uh, that enrolled in most of these studies on contingency management uh, respond to this treatment. So what happened was at Columbia, uh, Diana Martinez, who's a researcher in neuroimaging and substance abuse, decided to use a particular neuroimaging modality called positron emission tomography, or PET, to look at mm-hmm. the release of dopamine in a particular area of the brain, which is called striatum. And what she found was that uh, the release of dopamine to a particular medication is correlated to how well these people actually respond to this behavioral treatment, which is pretty interesting in itself. But I think Mm -hmm. what I – so when I heard about this data, I went to Diana and I asked her, you know, I wonder if we can – use her signal in the brain to make a, a prediction on an individual level. So she compared these two groups, treatment responders and non-responders, and she saw that on the group level there is a difference. So then I took her data and I created these computational models using the techniques that I was telling you about. And what we found is that, indeed, you can do individual level predictions. Thing is, And you get about 80% correct. But what's more interesting is when you start to add um, early treatment response to uh, a brain scan, you actually get a bump in your predictive performance. You can move from 80% to 90% in your, mm-hmm. uh, in your prediction of whether someone's going to respond. And in fact, if you only have early treatment response, you get as good of a prediction as the brain scan. You get, a, you get about 80% uh, improvement. So I think that the wave of the future is some way, some intelligent way to design treatment programs where different 
approaches can be tried in a reasonably small period of time, along with um, some collection of baseline data, may it be genetic data, may it be neuroimaging data, that would help you make an initial decision on what treatment you, uh, which route of treatment you take. And then for a period of time after that, you can then reevaluate and see whether or not you can move down a different path if that particular treatment doesn't work for you. So the treatment plan is always adapted to your particular response to a treatment. And this way of thinking about a behavioral treatment is really pretty new. And I think that the mm -hmm. field of substance abuse treatment is still grappling with the way in which treatments can be adapted to different individuals in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this makes total sense. In fact, it's the way we do medicine uh, everywhere else except substance abuse treatment. You know, we say, you know, if you're depressed, okay, you want to try this antidepressant? It doesn't work. You want to try this other one? Or maybe you don't want the chemical solution. Maybe you want the CBT. But we usually, we offer people options. You know, with cancer, we offer options of chemotherapy, radiation, all kinds of different things. We don't say, well, everybody needs radiation therapy. Nobody needs chemotherapy. Um, you know, we've never had this mindset anywhere else in medicine except substance abuse treatment. Well, I, I think that while it's you're right in some sense in that um, there is a certain political stigma in abstinence as the final uh, outcome, and that's been changing recently. I think actually in medicine, the idea of sequential treatment selection is fairly new. The idea of uh, for, for, take, take your example of depression and choosing mm -hmm. and rationally choosing the right sequence of medications for treating depression. This is actually a fairly new idea. The trial that really established this as the standard of care, which is called STAR-D, wasn't really completed until about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, And in other fields of medicine, let's say hypertension, the treatment, mm -hmm. the treatment algorithms are not really well studied in those kind of sequential trials. Usually, uh, treatment, different treatments are compared against each other. Um, mm -hmm. So you're right. While there are always uh, choices of treatment, usually you have a fairly limited choices, and you don't think about treatment failure as much. So, uh, uh, so, uh, so. You know, I think that, that the idea that uh, the rest of the, we're playing catch-up to the rest of medicine has parts that's correct, but there, there are also parts about how do we structure treatment and deal with treatment failure that we don't really know that much about in many other areas of medicine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's very interesting. I, did, I wasn't familiar with any of that. Um, what do you think about harm reduction as an outcome or moderation or controlled substance use? So, so this actually ties, I'm very interested in harm reduction as well, and it ties into certain, uh, some of the new research studies that I'm starting to develop now. And so what we are really interested in ultimately, I, in my opinion, is not necessarily the patterns of substance abuse in and of itself or even medical sequelae or psychiatric sequelae, but long-term functioning or uh, quality of life, um, things of that nature. So more global impressions of people functioning. So 
it's very difficult to actually translate the proximal outcome, which is abstinence or some pattern of substance use, like harm reduction, to the long-term outcome that we really genuinely care about. And I think that has to do with the methodological difficulty in, tr- in translating these two, these two things, in correlating these two things. I think that different people have different goals. Some people are interested in harm reduction. Other people are interested in uh, maintaining abstinence. And, um, and it's not, you know, I think to differentially emphasize one outcome over another uh, creates barriers for some people to get care. A lot of people, for mm-hmm. example, are afraid of relapse because they perceive that as uh, treatment failure. And a lot of times I tell patients, you know, yes, you did have a relapse, but look at you six months ago. You were literally in the gutters. You were literally drinking nonstop, having withdrawals all the time. And now, even though you had a relapse, you haven't turned your life around entirely. So you have to, um, uh, you know, understand these things uh, and say, you know, yes, the relapse part is not a great thing, and we're, we're going to work together and to prevent that from happening in the future because abstinence is your goal that you told me. On the other hand, mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you that, you know, for, for a, a variety of other purposes, you have improved and we, ha- we're, we are seeing a very positive outcome in your case. So I think, you know, just very similarly to a, the question of assigning treatment, I think assigning the appropriate outcome is also a very personalized uh, decision. And, you know, where do we go with uh, which outcome is a question that requires a further empirical study of the kind that I was talking about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, our program is called HAMS, and that's an acronym, and it stands for Harm Reduction, Abstinence, and Moderation Support. So we will support any positive change that the person wants to make any goal from quitting to being moderate to cutting back some. Maybe you got, were getting drunk every day and now you want to get drunk once a week. Um, or maybe you were drinking and driving and you want to stop drinking and driving but don't want to change the amount that you're drinking. Uh, so right. we will support any positive change. And we say, you know, it's up to you. You choose the goal that you want. Do you want to quit? Do you want to cut back? Do you want to be safer? and not change your amounts. It's all up to you. And, of course, in our program, which is a support group, but, you know, people can change their goal anytime. If they are trying to reach certain moderate limits, they think it's very difficult. Maybe they say, it's easier to quit. Or maybe they say, I need to relax my standards a little and do, do more harm reduction and less moderation. Uh, so we're right. very, you know, we believe uh, in having the, the goal being client-driven, Absolutely. On the other hand, you know, on the other hand, uh, sometimes the client doesn't necessarily is is in the right state of mind to make the best decision for him or herself. And that's often, Mm -hmm. especially for, um, you know, uh, adolescents and young adults, that can be a problem Mm -hmm. and creates barriers Mm -hmm. for treatment as well. So, you know, these are all very complicated things that you have to think about when you're providing mm-hmm. clinical care. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we decided that uh, we are not going to deal in our group with uh, young adults. We uh, we deal with adults over the age of 21. Our board voted <laughs> right. on that as the best approach. And our members actually said, a lot, uh, most of our members are in their 40s. They said, you know, I don't want people my son's age in here. <laughs> right. So, right. I think, you know, that's a, that's a very challenging issue. And, you know, even in older adults, a lot of times it's the family members that are really the ones that recognize the problem. And sometimes the family members have different goals um, compared to the, uh, the, the patients who present. And how to reconcile that and work together with the family or even the doctor, the physician, the primary care physician um, in creating uh, collaborations is a, is a very challenging aspect of treating substance use problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that a lot. Um, and many, many times, you know, our, our members will cut their drinking down to like a quarter of what it had been previously. So it's a huge reduction, you know, 75% reduction. And yet the family members are saying, "Oh, you're you're still drinking. You're just a big drunk," and they don't they don't even recognize the change. Right. So it's a it's a it's a difficult thing often, and you know. Yeah, and, it's, you know, it's, it's a very not, difficult problem. I mean, it's not always the case that the person uh, reduces. I mean, people that come to our program. They're highly motivated because, you know, it's hard to find harm reduction for alcohol. You have to go on the Internet and search for a while to actually find it. Right. So everybody that right. comes yeah. into our program, self-selected, very highly motivated. It's a very biased sample. But, you know, our people tend to do very well because of that fact. Right, right, right. Well, I want to move on. Let's look at some other things. I saw on your website that you uh, deal with Internet addiction. So why do you think uh, that is uh, a real addiction? I mean, it's not in the DSM yet, or it, it hasn't been officially recognized. But why should it be? Uh, why should it be treated as such? Right. So uh, I've developed an, a clinical interest in behavioral addictions, uh, but more specifically, in uh, I wrote a chapter on internet re- addiction, reviewing the existing literature on this particular entity, which is not a whole lot. But what people have discovered, um, there are two main bodies of evidence that suggest that some analogies between problematic Internet use and substance use disorders can be made. One uh, line of um, uh, research has to do with neuroimaging of people with Internet, problematic Internet use, and uh, and also internet gaming that goes out of control, and also psychological experiments uh, measuring the kind of cravings and withdrawal symptoms that people experience uh, when they develop certain behavioral characteristics of uh, problematic internet use. And that's one part. And the other part is uh, there is a small body of literature on using. Uh, pharmacological agents as a way of treating problematic internet use and internet gaming and internet uh, internet addiction, internet gaming addiction phenotypes. And it seems that the same kinds of medications that work for other substance use disorders 
can also work for problematic internet use. So, mm -hmm. um, and certainly, in uh, addition to that, is that uh, CBT and other psychotherapy modalities originally developed for treating substance use disorders to, to treat problematic internet use have shown quite a bit of promise in being efficacious for that kind of problem. So uh, these two lines of evidence point to me that there is a, a significant commonality between the uh, behavioral addiction uh, phenomenon and what we understand as substance use problems and potentially can open up um, a path for us to move forward in terms of research. Mm -hmm. I've heard of naltrexone being used for behavioral addictions. Is that the only thing, or have there been other things used too? So, so um, naltrexone has had some case theories uh, examining, meaning that uh, clinicians have tried it on people who have problematic internet use or internet gaming use uh, disorders, and um, some people find it quite helpful. Um, SSRIs, there is actually a trial of one of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that has also shown some promising uh, results. Um, and uh, so, and then I think that there are uh, there are some ongoing studies looking at some of these other medications, such as topiramate. Um, uh, so, you know, I think that, that there is not a lot of really good uh, evidence out there, and the field is still struggling with defining it in a way that could um, be standardized across different centers so that uh, research can be done in, in a standardized way. Um, so all of the, uh, the evidence for the medications are still fairly preliminary. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Are there any other research topics that you're working on that you'd like to talk to us about? I think that, uh, you know, my, the, the theme of my research is essentially centered on the things that I've, I've told you about, which is, you know, given that uh, substance use problems are such a heterogeneous and, uh, and complex problem, and identifying the right treatments uh, for individuals can have significant consequences and getting people into the right treatment as early as possible uh, is a significant um, would would be a significant problem that would be that that is essentially um, the main focus of my research okay well it's been great having you as a guest on this show I learned an awful lot this evening so thank you very much for being our guest this evening Sean Lowe thank you very much for inviting me Okay, everyone, we see you all next week with another show. We're going to have uh, Debbie Rothschild on. She's a harm reduction psych psychotherapist, psychoanalyst out of New York City um, who's been pioneering the field for a while with Andrew Tatarski, and we will talk to you all next week. So until then, good night, everyone.